As we come now before the very word of God, would you turn with me in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to Genesis chapter 8. We'll read some verses here at the tail end of the chapter and then a bit into chapter 9, but we'll begin in Genesis chapter 8. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great and merciful God, we know that it, it was in wisdom and insight that you lavished on us the riches of your grace. And we know part of your grace is to reveal to us the mysteries of your will and your word to the praise of your glory. Would you help us now to attend to these things with listening and eager ears? By your spirit, would you open our ears to hear and our hearts to believe that we would honor you? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 18 and then read through into chapter 9. So Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is the word of God. Now, today, as we continue our move through Genesis and now carry on with Noah... Today, we need to have a talk about blood. Oh, boy. 
That's going to be the focus of our time. But in order to get there, we need to get some of our bearings here first. This day that's recorded in this text has been a very long time coming for Noah. It was quite a long time prior to this day that the Lord had seen that the wickedness was great on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, he says. And so he determines to blot out all the earth by his judgment. And yet God finds favor with Noah. God remembered Noah, so he tells Noah, make for yourself an ark. And and we're not certain how long it took to make that ark. Some people think there's reason to think that that it took 120 years in total between the time he's told and the time of the end. We don't really know. But eventually, some span of time has passed and the ark is finished and it's come time for the flood. So Noah, his family of eight, and pairs of all kinds of animals now go onto the ark where they hunker down and they weather the waters and they wait for a year and ten days on the ark until finally God says, go out. The whole span of the flood event, from when it's determined to when it's deluged to when it's dried out, that whole span has now ended. And when Noah here finally walks out of that ark with his two feet back touching the earth again, what might we expect would be the first thing he would want to do? You know, I'm back out on dry land again. Maybe he, you know, stretch and crack the back. That's what I tend to do after a long car ride. You know, maybe there was some, you know, some desire to celebrate, a big yippee, one of those, you know, leprechaun heel clicks. You know, he's a, a 601 years old, is it? So maybe no leprechaun kicks, but some sort of celebration something. You know, maybe we might think he's, he's going to, you know, get after the new start. He's going to get started building a tent, making some sort of makeshift house. He's going to start poking beans into the ground so that they can start to grow a garden. Maybe he's going to drive some stakes in the ground to, you know, weave some wine or grapevines to make wine. He'll do that eventually, but not yet. Instead, the first thing Noah does when he steps off the ark is worship the Lord. And that worship comes in the form not of singing praise, not in the form of a prayer of thanksgiving, not even in the form of kneeling, bowing, and reverence. It's worship in the form of building an altar to offer a sacrifice of blood. Now, that might seem unusual, especially given the circumstances he's just come from. It might seem that a sacrifice of blood is just adding more death where there has already been massive amounts of death. You know, in the flood, the Lord has reduced all of the life on earth, that whole breath of life down to barely a whisper. 
He's blotted out almost all of man, almost all animals, birds, creeping things. The only life left that God has seen fit to spare are those who have been brought into the ark, male and female, two by two. And if even just one of any pair of those creatures dies suddenly now, keels over, gets eaten up, or whatever, that's the end of their entire species. How then can Noah afford to offer a blood sacrifice? We know this isn't just a last-minute thought. God has provided for this beforehand. Before even the rains came on the earth, most of the animals came in two by two. But there were certain animals, ones that God calls clean animals, who came not by twos but by sevens. And these extra animals were brought into the ark specifically for this purpose after the ark. So that now that Noah has gone off the ark back onto dry land, he takes some of each of these sevens of animals and kills them on the altar. And I should mention that these offerings are called burnt offerings here. They're burned up, which means they're not offerings to be eaten, not by Noah, this is not like a hamburger cookout. And they're not it to be eaten by God either. It might sound obvious uh, to us that, that God's not going to eat an offering of meat, um, but that would have spoken volumes to some of the first hearers of this text. Because way back in their context, we know that Genesis is not the only record of cataclysmic flooding on the earth. There are a few other accounts, ancient uh, accounts from Mesopotamia, that describe some sort of massive great flood event as well. Maybe you're familiar with at least one of them. You might know the, the Epic of Gilgamesh. You don't remember what's in there. I don't. But some vague memory of, you know, high school English was a thing. In some of these other flood accounts from other cultures, the fact that they exist, that doesn't put them on par with the Bible. We don't think every single old text is somehow sacred just because it's old. Nor is this a threat to the truth or trustworthiness of the Bible. It's just, there's just other accounts that talk about this. And it's natural to expect that if this flood was a historic event, massive, that affected so much of the world, of course it's likely to be recorded and passed down through many branches of culture. And in some ways those would look different. These other records of these things have a lot of similarities with the Bible's account of the flood in Genesis. Now, these other accounts, all of them have some sort of central figure who's just like Noah. He gets on a boat, it's called an ark or something else, and, and they bring a bunch of animals that come on as well. And some of them even include specific details like the raven and the doves being sent out. But there's also some major differences between these other accounts of the flood and the Bible's account. Most of the differences are around what happens with the gods. So in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Noah figure, who has a very long name that starts with a U, and I can't pronounce it, so I'll just call him U. The Noah figure, U, at the end, when he gets off his boat, also offers a sacrifice, a burnt offering to the gods. But in his context, the gods come and gather around that sacrifice, 
the epic says, like flies, to eat it. That's the intent. He offers the sacrifice to be eaten because to them and their culture and their context, the gods used humans as slaves. They made humans to serve their needs as kings. Among many things, they would have people make them and bring them food. And so during the flood, of course, humans are not able to do that. We're kind of, there are few people bound on this ark. And so during the flood period, the gods become famished. They're hungry, eager to get their slaves back. And so when the Noah figure, you, is back on land and offers a sacrifice, they gather like flies and just gobble up this sacrifice. But in the Genesis account, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not like that at all. The scripture says that the Lord is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, meaning he is above anything that we can see or not see, above anything even that we might call or consider gods. He is the great one, the mighty one, the awesome one, the only sovereign God who needs nothing from Noah or anyone else. So God is not receiving this sacrifice to eat it, to fill his belly. He doesn't taste it, but you might notice in the text he does something else. He smells it. Did you notice that? It's in verse 21. He smelled the pleasing aroma of this blood offering. Now, what does that mean? Why is the blood pleasing to God? We know the smell of this sacrifice from Noah is pleasing not because God is bloodthirsty. It's not because he likes the scent of death. You know, God is not a grim figure who's kind of part of the Adams family or just likes dark things. Elsewhere in the scriptures in Ezekiel, the Lord clearly says about himself, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. The Lord loves life. He is the breath of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the creator, giver, sustainer of life. He's even calling Noah to be the bearer of life, to carry it forward, to be an increaser of life as well. Be fruitful, multiply on the earth. God loves life, and God equates life that he loves with blood. He says in verse 4, the life that is its blood. Blood is equated with life. And that brings a few practical matters that God names here in this text. One of those practical matters is what that means for matters of food, for us. He talks a little bit about how we're to eat. You know, God in this area and afterward clearly permits the eating of animals. It's not that we have to eat meat. It's perfectly fine to be a vegetarian. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not immoral to eat meat either. 
But, he says, whenever you eat an animal, if you eat an animal, don't you eat it with its blood. Now, that doesn't mean that all of your steaks have to be well done. It doesn't mean all your burgers have to be blackened to a crisp. It doesn't mean the only acceptable meat to eat all has to look like jerky. Okay, you might like jerky, maybe not, but it doesn't all have to be like that. If that's what the Bible said and taught, we would have to submit ourselves to it and change our eating habits to obey it. What God says is good, but that's not what the intent is here. Here, we get just a distinction made between the flesh the meat of the animal and the lifeblood of the animal. He's telling us that while you may consume the flesh, do not consume the life. We are never to be consumers of life that belongs to God. He talks about this in other places outside of the, the flood narrative. Uh, one of them is in Deuteronomy chapter 12. People are always interested to find these little corners in the Bible. Where is it? Did I write down the verses? I did. Verse 22. The Lord says this, Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. This equation of blood with life has implications for our food. It also has implications, the other matter addressed is for, for matters of, of bloodshed. Not just of killing, but of, of murder. There are later parts of the Bible that unpack this and expand it quite a bit further. There's a distinguishing between things like self-defense and manslaughter and what happens if an animal kills a human life. We don't have time to get into all those details, although it is fascinating and certainly uh, has some important implications for us now. We know the news. There's been lots of buzz about things lately around these things. But here in Genesis, what we can say, there's at least an early form of what we would now call capital punishment for crimes of murder. And the whole summary is just written in this short little poem, actually, in verse 6. The summary is, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's implications for here, for bloodshed. Now, some people may struggle with this idea. The idea of, of having to take a life for a life, specifically at the hands of man. It's not as if God says he's going to send a lightning bolt to do it. We are to carry this out. And, and so some people may say, wait a minute, you know, taking one life doesn't actually bring the first life back. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. 
It's a very natural feeling, but that's not what's going on here. The two deaths here are not two wrongs that are trying to make a right. The first death, whoever sheds the blood of man, that's a wrong death. The taking of innocent blood of man, that's wrong. Whoever sheds the blood of man. But the second death, by man shall his blood be shed, that's not wrong. That's the com God commanded the taking now of the guilty blood of man. And the intent in doing this is not to bring the first blood back. We can't do that. We don't have the powers of resurrection. That's in God's hands, not ours. The intent is not to bring the first blood back. It's to give the first blood peace. If you remember or you're familiar with, with the earlier encounter in Genesis where there was the, the first bloodshed, back in chapter 4, where uh, Cain just murders his brother Abel, in that situation, Abel's blood, after his death, cries out to God from the ground, says Genesis that his own lifeblood has been wrongly taken at the hands of man. And so that blood rightly calls for some sort of reckoning, that there's a price to be paid for the taking of, those, of his blood that only other blood can satisfy, that this blood cannot really rest until life is taken for life. There's implications then for matters of bloodshed and murder. It deals with our food, our murder, but all of this is now related to Noah's sacrifice. And it's the reason why the Lord receives this sacrifice as a pleasing aroma. When the text says that God is pleased by this aroma of the offering, it does not mean that he's happy about it. Oh boy! I love the smell of blood. That's not it. The word pleased means it brought God rest in the sense that he is satisfied by the blood. Which means that after all of God's work in the earth and the flood, when everything has all been said and done, the rains fell down and the floods came up and then everything dries back out and Noah steps back off the ark, it's done, but something in that moment is still unresolved, still incomplete. God has not been fully satisfied by the blood and the water. He's not quite satisfied until the blood on the altar So before and after the flood, a lot of things changed. Most obviously is there's a massive loss of life on the earth. Perhaps lots of other things geographically may have changed. The land masses may have shifted. Position of, sheet, of seas and oceans, maybe even the climate changed. We don't know all of that. But a, a lot of other things have stayed the same before and after the flood. And many of those things that have stayed the same are good things. We're told in this text that before and after the flood, mankind, male and female, is still in God's image. Their position in God's image has not been lost or swept away in the flood. 
It's also the same that we are still God's appointed rulers on the earth. We still have dominion over the creatures. We still are blessed by God to be fruitful, to multiply on the earth. There's still rhythms built into creation. He says all the seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day and night, none of that is going to cease. Good. We should be thankful for that. Those things remain the same. But there is something before and after the flood that's still the same that's not good. God says in verse 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That was true before the flood, and it's true now. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Not was evil, is. He's not talking here about the people who have died in the flood. Those people are gone. The intention of man's heart, man being those eight people who have been on the boat and are now coming off, the intention of that heart is evil. The flood may have washed away many things, but it could not wash away all evil. It's not as if God tried to rid the earth of all of its evil and failed. That wasn't his full intention. When God decreated and recreated the world in the flood, when he pressed a sort of reset button, he wasn't resetting everything all the way back to Genesis 1, where he made all the world good and everything was without sin. He's resetting the world back to the state of Genesis 4, with Cain and Abel and all the rest of the effects of the fall. And after the flood, when God brings the ark to rest, he lands the ark not back in Eden, but in the mountains east of Eden, in a place outside of the garden. So what God did in the flood was blot out the widespread external expressions of evil. That violence and corruption had so run rampant across the earth that he just wiped it all out. But what remained still hidden within the heart of man, within Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives, still hidden there was seeds of evil that survived. That evil in the heart is not alive, but it's not dead either which means that our lifeblood still pumps with death. And it's only a matter of time before Noah's blood and that lifeblood is going to spill out into the waters again. So in order for God to be finished, to be satisfied by the work of the flood, he has to deal with the final matter of the lifeblood of Noah and of the handful of mankind that he spared. God's not going to take Noah's lifeblood as he has done with the rest of all flesh, but he's provided beforehand for these sets of seven animals to be offered in faith that he would receive as a blood substitute. Noah's not the only one that this happens for. This becomes the pattern that goes forward. It talks about it in several places. Here's just one. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. 
the Lord says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes atonement by the life. God allowed people to offer up animal blood in exchange for their own. And the people of God lived under this system of lifeblood atonement offerings for generations and generations and generations, teaching their children how to do this as God had told them to until the final sacrifice would come in the shed blood of Jesus, the one whose blood would finally satisfy fully, who would cover all the sins of all who believe, of all people who would give themselves to him. Jesus then becomes the pleasing aroma that satisfies once and for all time. That's what we call the gospel, by the way, the good news that our standing before God, the thing that brings us rest before him, is not based on any works that we've done. We are all still stained by the evil intention of our own heart. But our standing before God is not based on that. It's based on Jesus, who is our lifeblood. It's his blood that fully atones for our sin, and he begins then to pump his new lifeblood through our very, very veins. That's good news. That's the only path of real life for us. And we need to hear this many times in many various ways. We sing about it, pray about it. It's in all of our services in, in various forms. We need to hear about it over and over, re-reminding ourselves, Jesus is our life. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our life. We need to hear that when we're at our lowest. When you have those times when you are most crushed by the sense of your own sin, that feeling of despair, fear before God. If that's you right now, hear me say it. Jesus is your life. Tell yourself that as you leave from here. We need to hear it if we're at our lowest, but we also need to hear it if we're at our highest. When we're on top of a literal mountain after the floodwaters have passed, when I'm feeling like the champion king of the world. We have no idea what's going on in Noah's mind as he steps off the ark. He hasn't said a single word in this entire narrative. We don't exactly know what he's thinking, but we do know the heart of man, and so we know some sense of the heart of Noah, so it would be appropriate to guess what he might be tempted to think, tempted to think that he deserved this spot. You know, I've been obedient. I served God. I built a huge boat after all. It took me years, decades, centuries maybe. So that's got to count for something, right? You know, God chose me to be saved on the ark after all. You know, hey, God must think I'm something. I mean, I'd be perfect, but I'm at least better than those crazy heathens. I've, I've at least got to be the best of the bunch. We begin to pump our own sense of self, puff ourselves up, but the altar of God will strip us of our pride. That here, 
Noah has nothing with which he can even build the altar. No trees, no lumber yard. He probably used broken up pieces of the ark, whose purpose is now done. Builds this altar, gathers these sevens of clean animals, whose lives he had for a year carefully preserved on the ark, and now he just takes them and cuts the throat to end their life and arrange the flesh on the altar. The blood of those animals would be stuck underneath his fingernails. The scent of the blood would be in his nostrils. And Noah would light the fire of that burnt offering and then stand back together with his family and watch the sacrifice burn Watch the smoke rise before God. And he would have to know in that moment, this is the blood. This is the blood that God in his mercy has received in our place so that we might live. Pray with me. Lord, would you so humble us that we would see and receive this gift of grace as well? Would you strip us of all our pride and cover us under the precious blood of Jesus, make us faithful to receive it and thankful to love it? Help us to smell the sweet aroma of Christ who's been given for us. And Lord, would you be pleased to receive us by way of the blood of Jesus? Thank you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.